We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark together. And as you turn there, as you get that in front of you, um, we, uh, we have a membership class today. Uh, it's at 3.30. It'll be in the fellowship hall directly back behind this building. Uh, you don't even have to sign up for it. You can just show up if you want at 3.30, and we'll have some coffee and stuff to kind of get you through that afternoon nap window. And that is just really an opportunity for you to find out more about, about the church, about what we're, what we're doing, where we think things are headed, uh, how, we're, how we make decisions, uh, what it means to be a member of, of the church, all that kind of stuff. There's no, uh, there's no obligation at all. So if you come and you hear a bunch of stuff you don't like, then that's, that's fine. We won't hold you to it. It's really just to give you a sense of, of who we are. And so uh, that'd be today at 3.30. If you can't make it today or if you need more notice than that, we'll schedule another one in a few weeks. So, you know, so no worries on that. Um, Mark chapter 9... We get to something that I've I've never I've never taught on this before uh, personally, and I've been I've been teaching the Bible in some form or, or another for twenty years now. I've never I realized I was like I've never taught this. I've read it, but never had to like articulate it and put it together, and really never never done like a really deep dive into it. And this is this has been been good for me to study through. Uh, it's it's the Transfiguration, and. Uh, that is, uh, it's just one of the most mysterious things that we see in the New Testament. Um, not, there's a lot that doesn't make sense, but there's some stuff that does make sense. But there, there's just a, a degree of beauty in the mystery that we kind of know what happened here, but we kind of don't know what happened in a lot of ways. Um, and so we're going to pick up on, in verse 2 of this, of this story. And... Um, We're just going to go a little bit at a time uh, in terms of unpacking it. But let me just read it top to bottom uh, for us, just at least the first part. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, uh, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning uh, what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Okay, so let's go a little bit at a time. And let's start off uh, with, like in in verse 2, Peter, James, and John are, uh, like you 
you see Jesus interacting with different, different uh, numbers of people at a time. Sometimes it's a hillside full of folks. Sometimes it's around 70. Sometimes it's his 12 disciples. And then sometimes it's just three, these three guys. And uh, there are probably various reasons for that, different, you know, different things. But, but one thing I read in studying for this is that um, according to the Old Testament, you had to have three eyewitnesses of something in order for it to be like to hold up in court or be considered legitimate. And so it's interesting that Jesus would take uh, not only these three, which he gave more attention than, you know, on, on purpose for various other reasons, but also that he would take them, uh, we would assume to witness something that they would later have to go on and attest to, uh, at some other point. And so Peter, James, and John are, are there with him and look at, look at verse two. After six days, Jesus took with him, Peter, James, and John led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before him, before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. All right, let's stop right there. What, what we see here is this really uh, special, like peek behind the veil, a little bit. Uh, we see something about Jesus that uh, they had not experienced so far in this way. And that they really wouldn't see sense. This is this really in, intense moment. And there's a, there's a theological concept that, that we have to understand a little bit in order to, I, th- I think, appreciate the significance of this moment. And the, the, the term is hyp- hypostatic union. Imp- are you impressed? Uh, I didn't even have to look at my notes. Hypostatic union is, is it's, really, it's another way of describing the incarnation. It is uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's, it's, it's that idea, but it is really addressing the, like two really important things. That Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. And that those two, ex- two things coexist in one person. 100% God, 100% human. Um, so uh, each nature, though, like it, it, it remains distinct. I mean, there's, there's unity in terms of how they cooperate, but there's a, there's a distinction. It's, it's a lot like thinking about the Trinity, how uh, there's one God who eternally exists in three persons who are each fully and equally God, uh, but yet they are distinct. And so it's, it's kind of Trinitarian in, in this thing of like, shouldn't you either be human or, or be God? Like, how can you be both 100% in one container, you know? Uh, but that's what's going on here. It's this mystery. It's it's a it's miraculous. It's as as stunning as anything else that, as you'll see in the in the Bible that this could be the case. And so um, each nature remains distinct. So his human nature would be all the things that we see about him that are that are just like our own human nature. So um, in the the fact that Jesus would get tired and need to rest, like that's his human nature. The fact that he ate food to sustain himself. Or be hungry sometimes. Um, the fact that he was only he could only be one place at one time, you know, like that's very like you and I, you know, obviously same way. Um, he experienced linear time, so he there was a you know he was we see him born, we see him as a toddler, we see him as a as a twelve year old, we see him as a thirty year old, you know, like so he's he's growing and learning and changing, and so that linear time, just like we experience. Um, he has limited perspective in that linear time. You know, there are, are these interesting moments where Jesus, well, he'll say things like, 
uh, only the father knows when this is going to happen. Like, I don't, I don't even know. Like he's, he's linear in, in that way. He's, his perspective is very limited as a, as a human. Um, he is, uh, very much reliant upon the Holy Spirit to lead him and to guide him just like us. Uh, he, in his human nature, he doesn't know what to say, what to do, when to go there, when to wait, like all those things. And, um, you know, there's, uh, there's this, this beautiful moment where they're, um, they're, uh, they bring this woman who was caught in the act of adultery before Jesus and they want to kill her. And they're like, what do you think we should do? And there's a, and he like kneels down, he like doodles in the dirt, you know? And uh, I heard a pastor years ago, you know, he said, we have no idea what's going on in that, in that moment. He said, but what I like to think is that Jesus is like, he's like doodling, but he's really praying. He's like, all right, I need you to tell me how to get out of this one. Like what? Give me the words, you know, how do I respond to this? And I remember hearing that and thinking, I never thought about Jesus uh, being dependent on the spirit to empower him and to give him the words and all that stuff. But in his human nature, he was dependent on the Holy Spirit just like you and I. Um, so th- all those human things that we see about Jesus, that's his human nature. Uh, then at the same exact time, there's this full divine nature that's in him. So all the things we know about God. So um, in, in Jesus, uh, there's also this omniscience where he does have all of the knowledge. Um, he's not lying when he says that only the father knows. I'll get to that in just, in just a second, but he does have all of that knowledge because he is God. He has, he is omnipotent. He has all the power. Um, he's the one that spoke the universe into existence. I mean, he's, he can just say, let there be light. And there's this light, you know? So that is still the case for him. Um, here on earth, he is eternal. He was not created at some point. He has always existed and will always exist. Uh, he is holy, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit is. Um, he is, is infinite. There, there's no limitation to Jesus. And so we have both of these natures coexisting. This human nature that is hungry and tired and uh, limited and all that stuff. And then you have this infinite, un- like just unlimited, eternal, all-knowing uh, God all in one place at one time. That's the hypostatic union in a very uh, like poorly constructed argument. Just trust me, uh, I studied it. So um, here's this beautiful mystery, and we don't really know how these two realities like intermingle together. The Bible doesn't tell us how it works, just like the Bible doesn't tell us really how the Trinity works. It, I mean, it tells us a little bit, but by and large, it's just this big like. I, I don't know. It's that's really that's for God to know, um, but it seems. And here's here's kind of how we have to approach this. It seems as though throughout the majority of Jesus's earthly ministry, he humbled himself by limiting access to his divine nature, relying on the strength of the Father and Spirit to help him endure the full spectrum of human experience. That's, that's a dense sentence. Let me, say, let me say it again. It seems as though throughout the majority of his earthly ministry, he humbled himself by limiting access to his divine nature. So he, he could at any time have, have really like called upon all of that omnipotence and omniscience and all those things. Um, but in humility, 
that's a part of him not considering equality with God something to be grasped. But he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. And so Jesus on earth, while still being God, it seems as though it's something that he chose not to operate in. It, it, we think we have to approach as Christians that Jesus was really functioning as a human on the earth when he was here. And so just like us, he's relying on the strength and empowerment of the Father and the Spirit to help him endure all that there is to experience here. And so when you think about Jesus doing daily ministry, uh, what he is doing is uh, really like he's drawing from the same power source you and I are. That the same power that raised him from the grave lives in you and I. I mean, that's, that's the, the reality. That uh, when he tells his followers, you will actually do greater things than me, he's, he's meaning that in a very literal sense. And I don't mean literally in the way that like cool people say it now. I mean, he's actually meaning you guys are going to do these greater things than me. Um, and it's just this incredible, incredible truth that Jesus would choose to come and be one of us. That God would choose to come and be one of us. So, from what we can tell, his perspective would have been limited most of the time, and so it's beneficial for us to think of Jesus as a human. So, think about it like this. So far, these disciples had only seen Jesus as a human, and he's working these miracles and stuff, but they never really thought like, Oh, that he must be God because miracles were worked and it was just considered to be like a like um, in times when they're saying, well, who does like when Jesus says, who do you think who do people say that I am? You know, they're they're referencing, well, maybe Elijah or maybe John the Baptist or maybe one of the prophets. In other words, maybe one of these people from our history that have reflected the power of God, that God has has shined upon them and they have done these incredible things. They've seen him as like a reflector. But in this moment, like this is a moment when he's not reflecting. You know, the moon is just reflecting light off the sun, right? Am I correct, scientists, right? The moon is not a light source in and of itself. So Moses, the prophets, Elijah, all these ones that had gone before him, they weren't, they weren't the source. They were just reflecting the power of God. And they had just kind of put Jesus in that category. But in this moment... This is different. He was transfigured before them. That word is, that's where we get metamorphosis from. Like he, something, something different happened in this moment and they got to see it. They got to see the glory of God shining through the veil of that humanity. They got to see both of those natures on display for just a moment. a glimpse of who he is in reality and who he's always been and who he's going to be. It was something that it was something that had been veiled and for a second God kind of pulls the veil back a little bit. And this this is phenomenal. Like this is uh, this is mind blowing. Later on Peter would go to write these words in Second Peter chapter one verse sixteen. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. To see the majesty and glory of God. To follow your rabbi up this mountain and be like, where, where are we going? Why is it just us? What is going on here? And, and suddenly, you, you see him for who he is. You and I have had moments like that before, right? Like, you, maybe not to this degree, you know, maybe not this blinding light, but don't you love those moments when you just see the beauty of Jesus for who he is, like in this really pure, pure way, and it, it, it strikes you deep down, you know? It, it gets a hold of you, like you, like you just can't, you can't suppress that. And these undeniable moments of the beauty of who Jesus is, not, not, even, not even necessarily to us, just in his own like being. It's so, it's so easy to make everything about us and us and us and what he's done for us and all those things. And those things, of course, that's incredibly important. But isn't he just enough? Like, isn't he just enough? In this moment, it has nothing to do with Peter or James or John has everything to do with with God choosing this moment to say, I want you to see who he is. He is the intersection of heaven and earth. Like when Jesus is, t- is teaching the disciples to pray and he says, uh, pray like this, you know, he walks them through it and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth intersect in him that's that's why there are these moments when heaven intersect for us because he dwells within me and you and when we are together and there are these times when heaven and earth seem really really distant you know um, even just I mean simple things like I was last night just watching the news about El Paso you know and you're like, man, doesn't heaven seem so far away in those times when you're like, man, they're just going to Walmart. They're just going to the mall or whatever for a back-to-school sale. And this tragedy happens, you know. And not just that, but more. I mean, there's, it's all the time. And there, there are so many times when the weight and the pain of our world makes heaven seem like it's so far away. And what's supposed to happen is, in those moments, we... We come before the Lord in prayer and we realize that heaven is not far away because heaven is here. Do you believe it? I mean, heaven is here and heaven speaks to us through here. And when we come together, we begin to sing and heaven is here. And we baptize and heaven is right there. And we share communion and heaven is right here. And, and it's, it's this intersection over and over and over again where God's world and our world are not far apart. We realize how incredibly close that they are. And then even in those tragedies and in the, the pain and all the garbage and just the, everything about the world, we realize that heaven is always that close. Sometimes it feels closer than others, but it's always there because... Jesus is the intersection of those two things, and Christ in me is the hope of glory, and, and that's why we can get through it. That's why you can, you can do everything. If Christ in you is the hope of glory, the hope of God's glory in your life, then he has made that real for you and real for me. And anytime you forget it, 
That's why he says, gather consistently and regularly so that the world doesn't overwhelm you to the point where you think that the world has overcome him, but you're reminded that he has overcome the world. And so the beauty of the gathering of the saints is, is just all the more present. And so in this moment, what they're seeing is something that we get to experience all the time because we're on this side of the cross and on this side of him ascending to heaven and sending the Holy Spirit. And we're on this side of all that. So Christ in me and Christ in you is the hope of glory. Um, they're just seeing for the first time, like, wow, look, look at his majesty. And we get to walk in it all the time. We might miss it, granted. But if we're missing it, it's, it's, our, it's us, it's not him. So heaven and earth come together in this moment and they watch it and they see it. And it's hard to think that it could get any better then look at the next verse. Verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, if, if we were like first century uh, Jewish young men, this is, that, that's how the story gets better. But it's a little lost on us because we're none of those things. Jesus is transfigured before them. Heaven and earth are meeting. The glory of God through their rabbi is happening right in front of them. And then Elijah appears and Moses appears and they're talking to him. Um, now Moses would represent to them, like, he, like he's the most revered figure in the Old Testament and to the Jewish faithful uh, he's the, the giver of the law, and everything was about the law for them. And so there's Moses, and then there's Elijah, who was the greatest of the prophets. And so in front of them is the embodiment of the law and the prophets, and that was their whole world until Jesus came along. That was everything to them. And they're talking to their own rabbi. Um, that would have, have made this really deep and meaningful, but also super confusing for these guys. And uh, it just says that they were talking, and it's so natural to wonder, like, what are they talking about? Like, what would this dialogue be like between Jesus, Elijah, Moses? Um, I was listening to a sermon on this, and the guy, he kept making the statement. He kept saying that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so when you read it, reading in the Gospels, a lot of these accounts are in the same other kinds of places. And let me, let me read you what Luke has to say about this story. He adds, we don't have the exact words, but we know the subject. Luke 9, 30 and 31 says this. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What are they talking about? They're talking about his departure in Jerusalem. What does that mean? Well, the really, really smartest Bible people in the world believe that that is, is a phrase that sums up everything from his betrayal and arrest and trial and torture and murder and death through burial, through resurrection, through ascension, like his departure, departure. Everything that's going to happen at Jerusalem, all in with this one phrase, Think about Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about what he's about to have to go to, go through. 
Now, I would love to know the transcript of that, but I'm so grateful just to know the subject matter that here's, here's the embodiment of the law and the prophets who in their ministries were simply, they were simply signposts. That's what N.T. Wright called, would call them. They're signposts. Um, the law was a signpost pointing to Jesus. Um, the prophets were signposts pointing forward. Their entire ministries have been pointing forward to him and forward to him and forward to him. And now they get to talk to him. And what are they going to talk about? They're going to point forward to not only him as, as the incarnate word of God, but him as the, the willing sacrifice for our sins. We're talking about that with him. And I like to think that they are encouraging him. Because this is a passage of encouragement to Jesus. I think it was incredible for Peter and James and John, but really this isn't about them other than them witnessing it, like burning it into their memories to access later on in their ministries. But really this is a moment where Jesus is probably getting affirmed by them. What if, what if they're telling him, hey, you're, you're the one we've been pointing to, but what you're about to do is the, that's the, that's the good work prepared in advance for you that we were telling everybody about. We know that you're the one, and we know what, what you have to do. So maybe, like in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says this. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come uh, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Maybe this is what he was talking about. You have the law and the prophets, and they're all looking forward to Jerusalem as the fulfillment of everything they were pointing toward throughout the entire Old Testament. I love the idea of them maybe spurring him onward. This had to be a pretty remarkable moment for these three Jewish guys, but man, what a moment, what a moment for Jesus. Because remember, if he has humbled himself and is not accessing his divine nature, he is a human, he's a Jewish man who has grown up studying the scriptures and memorizing the law and the prophets. The whole time they're talking about him, and now the author of authors of those things are standing before him, and they're saying, "Don't like." They're saying something about what's about to happen for him. But can you imagine what that was like for him? There's this there's this uh, practice in the in the church called ordination, and uh, it's when someone is is called to ministry, and there's a there's a process that you go through, where um, you're basically vetted by other ministers who have already, who have already like gone down that road and different churches do it different ways. But for the most part, like it's a, it's a pretty intense thing. It's kind of like, uh, like, okay, kid, so you think, you think you can do what we do. So let's find out. And so what happens is you have the candidate who, um, assembles a, like an ordination council and asks every, every minister that's ever spoken into his life to come and he basically puts himself in a fishbowl and says, ask whatever you want. Sometimes they, they make them read certain books or write certain positions on different things, but they ask, they just pelt you with questions and pelt you with questions and pelt you with questions. And then there comes a moment where they either say, we, we think you're right. Like we, we agree that you're discerning the voice of God correctly. Or they say, we don't think you're ready yet. Or they say, we think, we think you're completely wrong. You know, 
It, all those things happen. But if, if this guy is approved by this council, then there's an ordination service. And in this ordination service, you do something kind of similar where it's, it's, um, it's maybe, maybe closer, closer to like a, like, a, like a wedding rehearsal dinner when people say a bunch of nice things to you. I know some of you are like, mine wasn't like that at all. Uh, but like, you know what I mean, like in a really good way. So there's this ordination service, and they they challenge you, but they affirm you, and it's just this whole series of these men st- like looking you in the eye, and building you up, and challenging you, and encouraging you, and s- like sending you forward. That's what this feels like to me. Is Elijah and Moses encouraging him, talking about what's ahead, and sending him into it, propelling him into it. If Jesus was human, he, he needed that. He needed that affirmation. And who on earth is going to affirm him? Maybe God said, I'm going to send you the two people other than me whose, whose opinions going to carry a lot of weight. I'm going to let you meet them. And you listen to what they have to say, and you, you keep going. Because from this point forward, um, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, it, it gets intense. Now that seems pretty incredible. And then it, it gets even better in the next, the next verse. Actually, not the next verse. Next verse is kind of ridiculous. Verse 5. Peter says to Jesus, uh, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we're here. Let's make uh, three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Uh, which is ridiculous, really. Like, no one has a clue why he is saying this. Some people try to guess. Most people just look at the next verse and it explains it. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Right? Like, oh, uh, he's just kind of like fumbling. One time when I was in my, in my mid-20s, um, I'll tell you the short version of the story. I, uh, there was a domestic uh, disturbance happening, and I had to, like, I had to do something. Right? I had to intervene, and it was a domestic violence situation, which I'm not making light of at all. Um, and I, I had no time to prepare. I just walked into this apartment. The door was open. The situation was happening. And uh, you know what I did? I clapped. I clapped at them. That was my, uh, that was my go-to move in crisis, is that uh, this situation was happening, and I went like this. Hey! And they stopped. But it was not a stop like I, I got their attention. It was more like, did that dude just walk in here and clap at, at me? And I realized later on that I was so scared. I, just, I don't know what I was thinking, but I just did that. And I kind of feel like maybe that's what they were doing here in this moment, too. Is like, he's just scared. He's like, we've got to do something. He's like, let's make some tents. I don't, I don't know. Um, it doesn't really matter because look what happens next. Verse 7. It's like, it's like God and Jesus. They all just ignore what just happened. They don't even address it. They're just like, let's just move on. Verse 7. A cloud overshadows them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Throughout the Bible, a cloud, uh, cloud is used to represent God's presence with his people. So this, this cloud overshadows them, like in, completely like envelops them. If you were Jewish, you would have known exactly what was happening. It would have reminded you of, 
uh, of Mount Sinai or being led in the wilderness or the, or the, the, the temple dedication being filled with a cloud, like you would, you would know what was happening. It completely surrounds them and overshadows them. It's like, it's like God is saying, okay, like Elijah's awesome. Moses, great. Jesus, different than them. And this is why he is different. He gives this public affirmation of his son, much like his baptism. He said, this is my beloved son. Didn't say, he could have just said, this is my son. That would have been great. This is my son whom I love. That's, that's the love between father, son, spirit, the love within the Trinity that we were created in that image. That's where our, that's where our love comes from, is this kind of thing. This is not just my son, he's my beloved son. And he says, listen to him. And that's kind of, that's kind of twofold. One of the, part of that is in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. there's this prophecy they've been waiting on for a long time since Moses. This is what he says. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Talking about Jesus, Moses was, signpost pointing forward to him. A lot of times in, in the Bible, you, know, you don't have to quote the whole passage. You can just say a phrase, and they would have grabbed onto the whole thing because that's how their, how their minds worked, how they were trained. And so when, when God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, these guys would have connected those dots and said, oh, he's the one Moses was talking about. He's been trying to prepare them to understand that he's the Messiah, um, and this is like the true like, version of, of this, but... And now, like, all these dots would have been connecting for them. In 2 Peter 1, verse 17, he, Peter describes it this way. He says, For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. Look at the first part of that verse. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, that's what's happening in this moment. God the Father is enveloping and surrounding Jesus with affirmation. But more importantly, he's, it's the honor and the glory from the Father that's coming to him. Think, think about the, the sequence that we've seen, chapter 8 to chapter 9. It goes from Jesus asking them, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, they think you're this and this and this. Then he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ. But here, this is God the Father saying, this is who you are. Who do people think you are? Okay. Who do disciples think you are? Okay. Who does God think you are? That's the one you grab onto. That's the one that we grab onto. And so again, what a moment for Jesus. The transfiguration, the conversation with Elijah and Moses about the cross that is ahead of him. And then his father, his father affirms him and says that he loves him. And says, you're the one they've been waiting on. What, what a moment. What was God doing in this moment? Here's part of what I think he was doing. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, there's this two verses. You've probably heard, heard them before. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, 
Looking to Jesus, here's, here we go, the, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Maybe in this moment on the, on the mountain, maybe God was, was putting joy in front of him. It says because of the joy that was put before him, he endured. Maybe this is a moment where God says, I'm going to put some joy in front of you because the road ahead is it's going to be hard. You, you, need to know, you need to know what's on the other side of the pain. You know what's on the other side of uh, all the difficulty. So maybe this was a time for God to say, I'm going to put some joy in front of you. And that is going to encourage you and motivate you and spur you on to obey even when things get really, really bad. But even if that isn't what is really happening here, what an incredible moment in history, in our story. Let's look at the, let's look at the last part. Verse 8. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So all that comes to an end. Verse 9. They were coming down from the mountain. He, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. See, basically, the, the people, like, they, they definitely weren't ready for God's version of the Messiah. Um, they were obviously not ready to know that uh, they basically saw the glory and majesty of God uh, bursting through in the rabbi and that this conversation happened. All, like, people aren't ready to hear all that. Um, so in his wisdom, uh, Jesus is like, don't tell anybody. Wait, wait till after the, res- the resurrection, then it'll make a lot more sense. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning uh, what this rising from the dead might mean. See, they, they were thinking that resurrection from the dead would happen, but it would be everyone would be raised from the dead at the end altogether at once. They, they didn't understand what like an individual rising from the dead would mean. It was mysterious to them. And so they ask him, verse 11, they ask him, why, why did the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? Um, and, and that was a part of the understanding is that Elijah would, you know, Elijah didn't die. He was carted up to heaven that he would, Elijah would come back and that he was a forerunner to the Messiah. And that's how that they would know. And so they're kind of always watching for Elijah to return and they're not sure what to do with this experience they just had. So they're asking him about it. Verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Um, and how it's written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it's written of him. It's one of those sentences where Jesus kind of like, it's like the word order and stuff is kind of hard to understand. Here's, here's in summary what he's saying. He's saying, yes, you're correct that Elijah is a forerunner to the Messiah. Um, but it's not Elijah himself. It was someone who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that guy's name was John the Baptist. So the, the story arc was right. Maybe some of the names were wrong. So the forerunner was John the Baptist, and I'm the Messiah. Look what they did to John the Baptist. They cut his head off. How much more do you think they're going to do to me? They're coming down this mountain, and there's this sober reminder of what was ahead, just like he had been telling them, like almost like don't you under, don't you understand, the plan of God is different than your plan, and that my call is a call to die, and to be raised again, 
And your call is a call to die and be raised again. Here's this amazing, amazing reminder that the one who died for us was God. That's really what's happening here. 100% human, 100% God. um, But he has come to us to lay his own life down. What What kind of God would come and die for all the rebels? Only this one. There's only one. And so it's a, another signpost, really, is what this is. The signposts are not only pointing to the incarnation, but they're pointing forward to the fact that Jesus would come and die for you and die for me. That God would love you enough to send his one and only son, his beloved son, and that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. Instead of perishing, you'd have eternal life. And so as they're coming down this mountain, it's this realization that now things are different in a really heavy way, in a beautiful way, but in a very heavy way. And so it's a reminder to us of the fact that this wasn't just any old rabbi that died for us. It wasn't just another prophet like Elijah. It wasn't just another amazing leader like Moses. This is not a reflection of God's glory, like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. This is the source of all of it chose to die for you and die for me. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. And it's true. It's absolutely true. Peter, James, and John would go on to have these ministries and they would write about this and they would testify about this and they would build their whole lives on it and they would ultimately be killed holding on to this eyewitness testimony of what happened here on this mountain and now you and I, we get to bear the image of God more purely. We get to be the ones bringing the kingdom near as we go because Christ in us is the hope of glory. So in just a minute, we're going to have two communion stations that will be open. That is, that is something that God has given us, a tangible reminder of what they experienced that day. That in the body of Christ broken for you was full humanity and full divinity. And yet he humbled himself. He said, I love you enough to where I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, access that divine nature. I'm going to walk in humility all the way to the cross because I love you. And so when you take that bread and they say the body of Christ broken for you, it's all summed up there and you dip it in the juice and they say the, the blood of Christ poured out for you that he had to shed blood to the point of death. That's, that's how it worked. And he loved you enough to do that. And so we'll have two communion stations that are open, and you're welcome in our line. You don't have to be a member of this church. You, you do have to want what Jesus is offering to you. You have to believe that he has, is the one that's come to save you and to rescue you. Um, if you want to come and kneel and pray at any point, these steps will be open. We'll have some staff and elders here at the front that would love to pray with you if that's the case. Uh, we're going to sing a little bit. And guess what? We're going to sing about the cross because that's what this is about. Uh, as we lift him high. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. And we will respond a few different ways. If you're, if you're new around here, uh, just know that everyone's going to be moving around. And that's kind of the point. Is we'll have communion and prayer and singing and different things. We want to give you a chance to respond in a way that connects with you the most. Uh, let me pray for us uh, as we move into our closing time. God, I'm thankful... Uh, for this text and 
for these eyewitness accounts that have stood the test of time. It's incredible to think about God uh, taking on flesh and dwelling among us, remaining 100% God, taking on 100% humanity. I mean, only, only you could come up with something so brilliant. But it shows us just the, the depths of what, what it would take to redeem us and to rescue us what it would take to overcome the power of sin and death, that God himself would have to die. I'm so thankful. I'm thankful, Jesus, that you were encouraged that day. Elijah and Moses showed up to talk to you. I'm so grateful that, you're, that you heard the affirmation of your dad. And whatever role that might have played in you continuing to say yes and going forward, we we are eternally grateful uh, for that. And so, God, as we as we sing and as we pray, as we take communion, as we are just together in this time, we're I'm reminded of the fact that you uh, you came for all of us. You came for the whole world, and um, but there's enough of you to go around. And so we thank you for the miracle of the transfiguration, but more importantly, for the miracle that it points to. And that we uh, are blessed enough to be able to walk in each and every day. So we love you, Father. We pray that this is a time of response that, is, that connects with the, the deepest parts of you and the deepest parts of us. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen. Our uh, tables are open whenever you want to come. Uh, let's just respond as you feel led.